But if you say to people, uh, look, you have to sacrifice your way of living, uh, stop flying, etc., for future generations, for people in other countries, then why would people accept it if uh, inequalities are that stark mm-hmm. right now? So we need to address both uh, types of inequalities between generations and within our current generations at the same time. So with the pandemic, governments around the world are reflecting on where policy should be going next and climate change is one of the big uh, items on the agenda. One issue, though, is that climate change policies raise significant environmental justice issues. And in particular, if we're talking about climate policies like carbon tax or carbon pricing more generally, this kind of policy will increase the price of energy. And this can particularly adversely impact low-income people uh, in terms of the affordability of gas, heating, and so on and so forth. So today, to discuss some of these issues, we're having on the podcast economist Adrien Fabre, who works on the politics of the carbon tax and of climate policies more generally. Adrien Fabre is currently a postdoctoral fellow at ETH Zurich, and you can follow him on Twitter at Adrien underscore Fabre. So today, what we're going to talk about is his publication with Thomas Duen, uh, which investigates the support for the carbon tax in France among people, you know, shortly after the Yellow Vest protest movement, which was a huge social movement in France against gas tax increases, which were due to a carbon tax. And this paper is uh, forthcoming in the AEJ policy. So congrats on the publication and welcome to the show, Adrien. Hello, uh, Johanna. Thank you for having me. Great. So in the US, you know, as you know, we currently don't have a carbon tax. And in France, they do have a carbon tax. It's been around since 2014. So we should understand the context here. So can you tell us more about the history of the carbon tax in France? And in particular, why did it run into trouble with the Yellow Vests movement, also known as Gilets Jaunes in in French? And can you also tell us a little bit about the role of social justice concerns uh, in the protests? Mm-hmm. So it's been a while that uh, different French governments have tried to put uh, forth a carbon tax. Already in the uh, year two, uh, 2000s, uh, they tried, but with some protests, uh, they, they didn't make it. And um, finally, in 2014, the government introduced a carbon tax. But actually, it's not really a carbon tax. It's a tax on fossil fuels. So it's a tax on uh, building and uh, road transport fuels. And it just increases the taxes paid uh, on gasoline. So in France, we already have uh, quite high uh, taxes on gasoline. This is why the price of gasoline is uh, more than twice the price in the US. And uh, this uh, carbon tax component uh, has increased it uh, by uh, 45 euros since uh, 2014. So the price was supposed to increase progressively. And because of the, until reaching uh, 100 euro per ton in 2030, um, Macron's government wanted to anticipate the target, so to, to have the increase uh, even steeper. And uh, because of the Yellow Vest movement, uh, Macron uh, cancelled the planned increase. So now the tax is frozen at uh, 45 euros per ton. Right. So why did these people protest? What what went on? Tell us more about the the background of this protest. So the protest uh, arrived four years after the entry of the carbon tax. 
and just a few months after a big increase in uh, oil prices. So people uh, started noticing this tax when they started noticing the bill because of uh, rising fuel prices. And uh, a petition from uh, an unknown uh, woman, Priscilla Ludowski, uh, gathered um, 2 million signatures in just a few months against fuel prices increases. And uh, this launched the Yellow Vest movement. So in November 2018, they started gathering uh, in roundabouts all over France. And uh, so random people started discussing about politics all day long on these roundabouts wearing uh, their uh, yellow jackets. And the trigger was the increase in uh, fuel prices and the motive for the first protest was the carbon tax, but the movement uh, is much broader than that. And people were protesting for purchasing power, for more democracy. And this is why the movement didn't stop when the government announced that they would freeze the tax, actually. So precisely, can, what, what exactly do you mean with purchasing power? And I know there are some social justice concerns, some redistributive concerns, you know, that some in the movement had. So tell us more about that. So people protesting in general against uh, the elite, against the system, um, against uh, a system that they find rigged uh, against uh, the middle class, against poor people. Um, so just uh, in the same year um, that um, um, there was the protest against uh, uh, the, the carbon tax, the government almost uh, removed the wealth tax. And um, so this is a protest uh, against the broader uh, agenda uh, that they find uh, anti-social. And so they were uh, fighting for more purchasing power for the middle class, the working class, and also for more direct democracy one important revendication of the movement was uh, the right to have referendum uh, so that people can propose the pieces of legislation or propose to uh, cancel a legislation that has just been passed by the government. Because in France, we have a system where uh, like the party from Emmanuel Macron has an absolute majority in the parliament, although uh, it has only 20% of the votes. And this is how they are able to pass unpopular measures like the repeal of the wealth tax. Right. So, you know, it sounds a little bit like people were thinking, look, the rich are getting fewer, you know, less taxation. They are profiting big time where we, the little people, have our gas prices go up. How are we going to deal with that? And I think part of it, if I understand correctly, was people, you know, the little people more perhaps in rural areas were driving more or in the suburbs, you know, use their car to drive to their work and, you know, being really concerned about gas prices. It's exactly that, yes. Right. So, uh, you know, in, so, you know, as you said, after the movement started, the government abandoned the increase in the, in the carbon tax, but people were still angry, uh, for a while. And so, you know, here we're concerned with climate policy and the justice aspect of climate policy. So, you know, how do we address that, right? Because in this case, 
the the revenue from this particular tax was, went into the general government revenue. So people didn't see any direct benefits to them. It's a policy that supposedly helps the climate, but makes life more expensive, hits you to your wallet, you know, when you have to pay for higher gas prices, and you don't see any direct uh, benefits. So you know, among po economists and policy experts, a popular way to address this concern is to pair the carbon tax with the revenue, getting the revenue from the carbon tax altogether and returning it to the people as cash in the form of dividend, the same for every citizen. And so uh, why is this policy popular among experts and how can it help address the social justice concerns that people had? So the carbon tax alone is regressive because poorer people spend a higher share of their budget in gasoline, uh, in uh, gas, than uh, richer people. Although they spend a lower amount in absolute value. And this is why when you redistribute the revenues from the tax equally to each household, then those who pay less taxes than average, so the poorer, uh, they will gain from it because they will receive the average tax paid and the richer household would lose. So on average, poor household uh, would gain and richer household would lose in a tax and dividend policy. The carbon tax in France was not complemented by this dividend. Uh, instead, the revenues funded the general budget where at the same time uh, the wealth tax was removed. Uh, also, uh, payroll taxes were decreased. And uh, the plan of the government was to decrease payroll taxes, actually, with the carbon tax, which uh, many economists also uh, like this idea because uh, you, you reduce uh, the distortions. Uh, but um, this was before the yellow vest. I think now economists understand that uh, the distributional impacts are more important than the efficiency, and uh, especially because they drive public support. Right. So I, I think, you know, what everybody needs to understand here is that the carbon tax is essentially roughly proportional to your consumption. Of course, some people consume more carbon, but roughly speaking, we all consume stuff that is full of fossil fuel, you know, uh, at some chain, somewhere in the production process. And so when you have higher income, you consume more stuff, you know, you might have a bigger car, more cars, a bigger house to hit and all that stuff. And that means that you're paying more taxes towards this carbon tax. And so, um, and so, but of course you can afford it because you're higher income. So, you know, as a share, it might not be so bad as a share of your income, but you're paying more taxes overall. And that's why when you take all these taxes together and you give back the same amount to everybody, rich people end up getting less from the dividend than what they pay in taxes, whereas poor people, like you explained, you know, they, they spend less overall, you know, uh, because they consume less, they have lower income, so therefore they pay lower taxes, but then they get the same dividend as the rich people, and the dividend, on average, for poor people, it more than compensates the higher tax costs. So that's, that's what we have to understand, and I think it's the reason why I'm repeating is I think it's counter, it's not completely obvious. And I think that might be part of why it's hard for people to get, you know, the, the purpose of this policy, because, you know, you have to go through some gymnastics to explain, you know, why exactly that, that, that works out. So again, the point is that when you're low income people, your, the amount of carbon tax you're going to end up paying 
is going to be lower than the dividend that you would be getting uh, in this policy. So precisely to try to get at, you know, would people understand this idea? You run a survey of 3,000 French people, which is a representative sample of the French population, and you ask them, you know, hey, there's this policy proposal. Like, do you support it? What do you think about it? Uh, you know, uh, what, 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 what are your thoughts? Of course, you did that in a survey, so it was not completely open-ended. But this way, we can know more about what people think about such a carbon tax and dividend and whether they think they would help, you know, shield poor people uh, from the cost of the carbon tax. So what did you find? So we start by asking people whether they think the reform, so I'm talking about a tax and dividend reform, um, would benefit poorer households. Then uh, 60% say no, and only 20% say yes. Then we ask them, do you think it's eff effective to fight pollution and climate change? And two-thirds of the people say no, only 17% uh, say yes. And we ask, uh, do you think uh, your household would gain financially from the reform? And then 15% say yes, and 65% say no. So people hold very pessimistic beliefs on the properties of this reform. Then the question was, can we inform them and uh, would they change their mind if we tell them uh, what you just explained? And the answer is, is not uh, that good news because very few people uh, update. And those who update are essentially people who originally approved of the reform. So they approved of the reform even though uh, they thought it was uh, regressive, it was hurting the poor because they thought, you know, climate is, is more important. And then they are ready to change their mind. But those who oppose the reform, very few of them trust uh, our new information that uh, the reform would be progressive, would be effective, uh, would not hurt uh, their household right. financially. So let's let's break this down a little bit because I think there's two aspects here. So the one thing is once you, you know, as you said, originally 60% of people thought that, you know, this scheme would not help the poor, even though I, we just explained why it's expected to help the poor. But again, this is a complicated idea. So it's fair that, you know, maybe they thought that that wouldn't help. Then you tell them, okay, we're going to show you how much the poor benefit would benefit versus the rich. And then I guess you can break it, this down then in two, you know, uh, stages, which is, first of all, are they convinced about your evidence? You know, do they believe you? And secondly, does that change their support uh, for the policy? And I think what you're saying is that they also didn't believe your evidence and their support didn't change. Or can you, can you explain it again? Some of them change their mind, um, but most, most of them people, don't. Right. So when we provide the information that uh, the reform is, uh, is environmentally effective, let's say, 5% uh, change their mind and say, okay, if we say it's a scientific consensus. Um, we, we also um, compute on the fly using the energy characteristic that the respondent answered in the beginning of the survey, whether their household would win or lose from the reform, and we give them this feedback. And then uh, we ask them again, uh, so do you think now that uh, you will win or lose uh, from the reform? And um, again, very few people uh, update. 
about uh, 15% or so. And, um, and just to clarify, and we, by update, we mean change their minds. So, for example, you know, if you thought you lost and then you're, you're being told, you know, we calculated that you would win, do you then report that, okay, yes, I guess I win then? So when you say update, it would be change your mind based on the new information, right? And, and so the yeah. point is, right, most of them don't. Yeah, change your mind if you have to change right. your mind, which is the case for most people, because most people think they would lose, and yet uh, we find that they would win. Uh, we cannot say that uh, uh, bringing information to people is useless, because it's perhaps the way we provided this information that uh, was not very effective. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, by, by showing them video instead of uh, just uh, two uh, sentences of text, uh, it would be more effective or... Uh, if someone from their um, belongings, um, from our, their acquaintances, uh, tell them that maybe it's more effective than an impersonal survey. But uh, our goal was not really to uh, know whether information can change their mind, but to assess to what extent it can affect their support. So the idea here is to use the fact that some people change their mind uh, to casually uh, estimate the motives, the different motives we've talked about, uh, so that it's effective, that it's progressive, that uh, my household will win, uh, to measure how these motives determined the acceptance or rejection of the reform. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what we do in our paper. We show that these motives are... Uh, very important determinant that uh, when you believe that uh, your household will win, uh, you accept the reform uh, with a 30 to 50 uh, percentage point uh, higher uh, probability. So you are 30 to 50 percentage point more likely to accept the reform. Yeah, if you which think is huge, win. right? Because, for example, that would mean that, you know, if before you had... 20% chance of liking the reform. Now with 50% more, you have a 70% chance of liking the reform. So that's like a huge change. It would move most people, you know, with a 50%, in fact, mechanically, that would mean that believing that you would win, you know, even if you had zero, you dislike the reform, absolutely, you would be moved to 50%, which is like just liking it okay. So, and we've said, you know, so, so that's like a huge, you know, I just want listeners to realize how large that effect is that if you started to think, oh, this is good for me, I'm going to win versus I'm going to lose me personally, financially, that really hugely influences the support. Exactly. And uh, believing that the reform is effective environmentally at fighting climate change, same effect, uh, you are 40 percentage point more likely to accept the reform. Uh, for progressivity, we, we don't have a causal estimate because we, our information didn't, uh, um, move people on average. So no one believed it when we say, uh, <laughs> which is very interesting for the topic of this podcast where we're really interested in social justice. It, in this case, I mean, again, as you said, there might be other ways of providing the information, but just telling people, Hey, it's actually good for poor. They like, <laughs> whatever i don't be, i don't i don't take it at least in the form of information that you provided yes and so that's why you weren't yes. able to determine 
they did change their support, right? Because first, you weren't able to change their mind about whether the reform was progressive, good for the poor. So since you couldn't change their mind, you also couldn't ask, well, how did it change their support since their beliefs, you know, kind of stay stuck on that one? Yes, exactly. So, so for progressivity, we are not able to measure the effects causally, right? But uh, we, we do some uh, simple uh, correlational uh, result, and, and we find that it's the same order of magnitude. So, like mm -hmm. your your thirty percentage point more likely to accept it if uh, you think it's progressive, right? And so overall, we we, we find that uh, if um, we could correct all the beliefs of people then virtually everyone would accept the reform. Maybe not those who lose, but, uh, uh, but even, even among them, uh, because uh, they would uh, think that the reform is effective and that it's fair. If they lose, it's probably because they are rich. And maybe even among them, uh, many of them would accept. So what our paper shows is that um, people, it's people holding pessimistic beliefs uh, against the properties of the reform that makes them um, reject the reform. It's not because they are uh, they don't care about climate change. Uh, it's not because they are opposed to, uh, to, 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 to the idea of carbon taxation. It's, it's because they really don't think it will work. Right. So precisely in your paper, you have some discussion. It's hard to know for sure, but what are some possible explanations for why people hold these pessimistic beliefs and also why perhaps it's not so easy to change their minds, you know, once they have these beliefs? So we can think about different explanations. One is uncertainty. So, you know, you know what will happen if uh, it stays like that. There is no tax. You just keep your current life. If there is a carbon tax, you don't know what can happen. And so... Uh, maybe you, you're prudent and uh, in case you will lose, you prefer not to have this tax. Um, so some um, data analysis uh, kind of dismiss this uh, explanation. Uh, then there is uh, the explanation that people have motivated. The way people integrate uh, new information uh, about the reform is affected by their prior uh, attitudes towards the reform. And this is supported by our data. Uh, this is the fact that those who originally uh, accept the reform uh, trust the news that uh, we tell them, but not those who originally oppose the reform. And so to them, uh, they update only when it's bad news. So when we tell them, uh, actually, your household would lose financially, and, uh, and they originally thought that their household would win, there are very, very few people like that. But uh, then these people update. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a, a third um, explanation. So before we go to the third, let, let's just clarify this idea yeah. of motivated reasoning. So basically the idea here is that people, you know, they have a certain opinion about, you know, this policy going in. And if you present them with information that might mean that the policy you know, let's say they, they, they dislike the policy going in. Then you come and you're like, hey, let me tell you something good about this policy. You know, it's a fact that this policy actually is going to, you know, save you some money, right? You're going to win some money. Well, those kinds of people who are coming in opposing the policy and you're telling them something that's good about the policy and therefore should tend to make them change their mind, 
they're more likely to refuse your information, like keep your information. I don't like it, period. I don't want to hear it. I'm not going to take it into account. Just la, 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 la. I don't want it. I don't like this thing, so I'm not going to change my mind. So I'm caricaturing a bit, but that's the idea of motivating reasoning is that you have your opinions and you know, you're not going to be easily swayed by somebody telling you arguments, you know, if, if these arguments would force you to change your position, especially if it's a position that you hold strongly, you're less likely to embrace any facts or arguments that would go against uh, your position. And one of the things you find, and that's been found before in the literature, is that interestingly, more educated people are even better at this game. So the more educated you are, the more you tend to engage in this meaning that, oh yeah, you have these dear beliefs and you're very adept at ignoring or, or sidelining evidence that goes against your beliefs, which I think is quite an interesting finding because you might think it's the opposite, but you know, anyway, maybe you can say more about this. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And uh, actually, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting to, to see that uh, educated people, somehow they are better able to, to find a consistent story. You know, they, they will find a, a weird way to how to put uh, two things together, although uh, it's, it's, it's not the simple truth. Um, so maybe uh, less educated people, they, they will just accept they are inconsistent and uh, and and maybe they will say, okay, you are right with this information. And uh, yeah, they, they are less confident in, the, in the, their, their prior attitudes, um, uh, more influenceable. Right, yep. right. So based on, you know, what you've done as well as the, the research, is there, are there some promising ways, especially in the domain of climate policy, that we can tell people information that doesn't so easily, you know, make, put their arms up, you know, if they don't like it, they're going to oppose it. Or, you know, there's other ways as well, but maybe the information wasn't clear. Do we know anything about potentially more effective ways of conveying the information? Yes. Yeah, so actually I have a new ongoing project where we extend this kind of work to 20 countries and we provide the same content in terms of information, but in a video form. And it's much more effective. And then uh, French people, American people, uh, they, um, I mean, more of them uh, update and uh, understand why the reform would help the poor. It's nice that you mention uh, American people and French people, because, you know, one of the... um, Interesting parallels here is that, you know, in France, there's already a carbon tax, but with the yellow vest movement in particular, it became more difficult to keep increasing it. In the US, we don't even have a carbon tax and actually attempts to pass a carbon tax at the state level, for example, have yet to succeed. And I myself have a paper with uh, Soren Anderson and Boris Shaw where we look at the attempt by Washington state to pass something like a carbon tax and dividend. It's not exactly, but it's similar and, you know, how it failed. And we find that one of the big reasons why that was the, likely the case is that this issue in the U.S. is very polarizing. So essentially in the U.S. specifically, if you're a Republican, you know, it, it goes with the territory that you're against the carbon tax. And, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're for it. But so, you know, that makes it more difficult to convince people because it's one of those things where the parties have very strongly uh, opposing views. And so um, I'd be interested if you have any views on 
how do French and American people, you know, look at the carbon tax or perhaps more generally environmental policy? Are there differences, any differences, if any? As I think this kind of helps us also understand the lessons from your study with respect to also what could be done in other countries, the US and others in the world. So from the preliminary results of uh, my ongoing project, we see no difference overall on the support for climate policies or for the carbon tax in the US and in France. It's it's about the, the OECD average. Fascinating. Like for the yeah. For the carbon tax, uh, the stylized uh, result is that you have uh, one third that is uh, for that supports it, one third that is against it, and one third that is indifferent. The difference between the US and France is that uh, in the US you have a very strong uh, polarization along the political spectrum. Uh, so it's at least uh, 20 uh, percentage points uh, higher support for Democrats than for Republicans. And in France, you don't have that. All political parties support uh, climate policies. Uh, even the parties that don't have any uh, climate policies in their program, uh, like uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, Front National, they 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 are not uh, negating, uh, denying climate change. And to to be clear, for uh, you know, like the Front National is the populist right wing party in France, and and you know, you're saying that even people who support this party, you know, they don't deny climate change. They also for for doing something about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in their program, you would have uh, some. Um, fake uh, climate measure like uh, we're going to produce in France rather than import uh, but uh, you know they are not denying climate change they are not denying that it's a big problem and uh, and when we look at uh, people's beliefs or attitudes um, we don't have any political uh, divide in the support for the carbon tax. Wow, along that's the political so fascinating. Spectrum. I mean I think it's really fascinating because when you're in the US and because it's like that you start to think that somehow maybe there's something about the policy that kind of necessarily, you know, gives it a partisan slant. But the case of France shows that it's certainly not inherent. And it, it may, you know, it, it's not necessarily the case that there's this strong political um, uh, opposition in the sense that, you know, people from different parties are going to necessarily feel very differently about this type of carbon tax, for example, or policies against climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe there is still a difference in the prioritization. Right. So in the left, uh, climate would be a priority. In the right, uh, not at all. Right. Would be immigration policy. But uh, but yes, in the support for the carbon tax, uh, no no big difference. Right. So you know, given some of your ongoing research, and we talked about France and the US, but you said you're also looking at other countries. What do you think are the prospects for carbon pricing, you know, either being put on or increasing in different countries and, you know, what kind of resistance uh, might it have from the public opinion perspective since this is something that you've really been looking at? So I think that to to get the public opinion on board, you need to have some comprehensive uh, framework, Um, comprehensive and fair reform of the tax system overall. This is how Sweden uh, got it passed in '92. Uh, it's because they, they 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 negotiated among all stakeholders in society, the, the unions, the um, 
the uh, bosses, I don't know, uh, every political party, how they could um, improve their tax system. And part of it was the carbon tax. Uh, I think this is key to have uh, such a holistic view uh, to because we know that there are uh, fairness concerns. Even if, when, if we complement the carbon tax with a dividend, uh, some people with the same income will lose and some will gain, even in the middle class. So there are uh, horizontal effects. Um, right, for example, because some people maybe live in the countryside and use their cars more, and they, but they have the same income as somebody who lives you know, smack in the middle of the city. And in, in Paris in particular, for example, you use public transportation a lot if you live in the city. They might have the same income, but the person, let's say, who also maybe lives in the Alps in a cold area and needs a lot of heating and has a car with the same income as the person in Paris, they might you know, potentially be hurt by this policy. Exactly. And also people may feel that even if uh, a rich person, a millionaire, uh, they end up losing a thousand euro uh, per, per month because of the carbon tax, they are not really losing anything because they can still uh, fly as much as they want, but they mm. uh, really face the carbon tax. They, they cannot afford flying anymore. Mm. And um, so it depends on the countries, but in France, people are really in favor of more redistribution. And I think the only way to, to get public support for climate policies, it would be to have some uh, redistribution, so to put back a wealth tax or to have an income redistribution through more, through more progressive income, tax, um, income taxation. And I think you also need consistent climate policies. For example, the Yellow Vest were really upset by the fact that uh, there, the kerosene uh, is not taxed mm -hmm. in Europe. There is an exemption for flying mm. and that uh, industrials, they pay uh, a lower carbon tax than households. Mm. So, and this goes uh, in favor of a uniform carbon price that... Uh, Economists also love that. So that's like they're here, there's a convergence of views. Yes. Right. So... Actually, I, I'm quite confident in the future of climate policy in Europe because the plan of the European Commission is uh, compatible with the two-degree scenario mm -hmm. uh, with carbon neutrality in 2050. It plans to uh, extend the emissions trading system to have another emissions trading system for uh, road transport and building. For the moment, we have uh, an ETS just uh, for industries and electricity. Uh, the big obstacle there is the French government, actually, <laughs> because uh, since the Yellow Vest, uh, they are very reluctant on, uh, on pricing carbon. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think they, they didn't uh, understand that the problem was not the carbon tax, it was the fairness. And I think that even uh, during the Yellow Vest movement, instead of freezing the tax, Macron's government could have said, uh, okay, we're going to redistribute the revenues from the tax in a dividend. Mm -hmm. And they could have um, maintained the, the, the carbon tax uh, increasing trajectory. Right. So, so hopefully the, the French government uh, will accept the, the plan from the EU Commission and will have a, a comprehensive uh, carbon price in Europe. In the US, uh, you would need to, to have a, 
one or two seats uh, shifting to the Democrats in the Senate, I think. <laughs> right, right. So that in the US, we are facing this additional burden of pol you know political polarization around these issues. But I think similarly, you were saying that, you know, in, in France in particular, it's a package deal that, you know, it will make it easier for the a carbon carbon pricing in general to get through if it's felt that it's fair and perhaps it comes with some redistribution. Um, and uh, an analog of this in the US is uh, ideas around the Green New Deal where it's not necessarily explicitly redistribution, but it's a little bit the idea of putting something positive that comes with the carbon tax. So because the carbon tax by itself, in a way, it's mostly a negative idea. And especially depending on how high climate change is on your list of priorities, you're kind of seemingly punishing yourself for something that for some people is, even if they're not denying it necessarily, is not high. We talked about that on the list of priorities. So then in order to get it passed, you have to package it. The idea goes with the Green New Deal, for example, with other things that people like, like, you know, stuff that maybe creates jobs, things along those lines, so that together as a package, it can be a, you know, politically attractive package and potentially also coalition building that, you know, people at least who are center might be sufficiently well inclined towards the package uh, in order to, to get this, uh, to get this passed. So I think it's, um, it's really interesting because, in economics, we have this clear view of what would be most efficient with regards to, you know, the carbon tax, same tax rate for, for all sources of carbon, etc. But then once you get into the politics, it can be hard to get exactly that. And it's about how to, you know, hopefully stay close to what's efficient, but while they're delivering a policy that people are going to be happy with, you know, citizens and, and recognizing that in different countries, it looks different because citizens might have slightly different priorities, you know, with respect to, uh, to what's important. So what are some of the next steps then? You, you talked a little bit about that, in, but in Europe and in France, where is policy going right now with respect to environmental policy? So I think it's not only a question of... Uh political acceptability that uh, we want to complement uh, carbon taxation with the Green New Deal. Um, it's also sound economic reasoning. So we need to change completely our infrastructure. Uh, in the US, you need to build railroads. Uh, everywhere, we need to have uh, uh, some uh, places to recharge the, the electric cars. Um, we need to change our electricity system. All these things are planned by the government to a large extent, to, or if not at the federal level, at the local mm -hmm. level. And um, also having um, complementary measures to a carbon tax helps uh, reducing the carbon tax you need to obtain the same results. Mm -hmm. And so you avoid uh, these uh, transfers from uh, people in the city centers to people in the suburbs with the same income, mm -hmm. which uh, are unfair. Mm -hmm. So, and, and there is also uh, Canadian uh, reasons why you would want uh, to invest massively into infrastructure because uh, employment rate can still uh, go higher. Uh, you are still a lot of uh, uh, unemployed people, people living in the streets. 
And uh, if you launch a massive program of green infrastructure, you can provide uh, jobs to these people. So uh, I think the, the, the I, I would give three big steps on uh, how to, to make uh, climate policy work. Uh, the first one is to have a Green New Deal alongside a carbon tax. Um, uh, the second point is to have a wealth tax or some form of uh, redistribution to increase uh, the fairness of the tax system. Because uh, if you say to people, uh, look, you have to sacrifice your way of living, uh, stop flying, etc., for future generations, for people in other countries, then why would people accept it if uh, inequalities are that stark mm -hmm. right now? So we need to address both uh, types of inequalities between generations and within our current generations at the same time. And the third point uh, would be to have a global climate policy. Because in the West, we have the resources to fight climate change. Um, but in countries uh, like India, like uh, in Africa, and both for uh, reasons of, of justice, um, for historical responsibility, and for pragmatic reason that they won't do it uh, otherwise, I think that we need a transfer of resources from high-income countries to low-income countries to help them do the transition. Mm -hmm. Probably also to reduce poverty, but that's a different topic. Right. And this could be done by, um, by offering to uh, all countries to join um, the European emissions trading system. So the European Union is thinking of merging this carbon market with the Chinese one, with uh, some carbon markets that exist in the US. But I think we should also offer to extend it, extend it to low-income countries by offering them uh, quotas in proportion to their population, which would be a way to transfer some uh, resources from high-income countries to low-income countries. Mm -hmm. And in the form somehow hidden, so that uh, perhaps uh, nationalists in, in, uh, in high-income countries wouldn't necessarily uh, notice mm -hmm. that uh, there is such transfer uh, because uh, we would um, insist on the fairness of the idea that each human would have the same right to emit carbon emissions. Right. Yeah, these are some, you know, very helpful uh, points. And I think there's hope that we can uh, implement uh, better environmental policies going forward. And, you know, I really look forward to seeing your new work that, you know, compares opinions across across countries. And, you know, I think this is something that we researchers and policymakers should obviously keep intensely working on. So thank you so much for coming to the show, Adrien. Thank you very much, Yana. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>